What Makes a Great Leader? In the podcast series, 12 O'Clock High, a podcast on business leadership, I explore this topic with Richard Lummis. We take a look at examples from history, from business, from current events, and even from the movies. If you're interested in all in business leadership, whether you're a CEO or whether you're a middle manager, this is the podcast series for you. We take a look at presidents and everyone in between. I hope you will check us out. 12 o'clock high. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to Compliance Into the Weeds, a podcast where with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance, we take a deep dive into the weeds of a compliance or compliance-related topic. In this podcast, Matt and I take on the recently released Juniper Network's FCPA Enforcement Action brought by the Securities and Exchange Commission, which was released last week in August. We review the facts of the underlying enforcement action and ask several questions. We ask questions about personnel and the China and Russian business unit and parent corporate responsibility. We take a look at the structure of the compliance program and how decentralized structure may have added to the company's woes. We consider how even with an effective structure, if you don't have policies and procedures in place, it can be a downside for your compliance program. And we also ask you to look at the discounts given for distributors and customers and is the money repaid to the customers as promised. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist and the Voice of Compliance, back again with Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, founder and editor of Radical Compliance for another episode of Compliance Into the Weeds, where we take a deep dive into a compliance topic. Today, we are going to take a deep dive into the Juniper Network's FCPA enforcement action announced just before Labor Day of uh, late last week. So, Matt, first of all, welcome. Uh, hello, Tom. It's uh, good to be back, as always. So, uh, I thought this was an interesting case, or uh, rather interesting enforcement action. What appeared to be, Matt, originally uh, to me a fairly pedestrian FCPA enforcement action, actually had a lot of instructive points. Uh, several uh, people in the commentariat world talked about it, and we each had a different angle. So I was wondering if you might set the stage with a little bit of the background facts uh, of the case. Sure. Yeah, well, so I would agree that um, in some sense the pedestrian is a good way to describe what we had happen here. Uh, So the misconduct in question, and Juniper Networks makes telecommunication equipment. Um, So uh, clearly Juniper would wind up selling to a lot of government agencies around the world. Uh, The misconduct in question happened 2008 to 2013, where Juniper's subsidiary in Russia, known as JNN Development Corporation, JNN was working with local partners in Russia where, stop us if you've heard this before, ladies and gentlemen, they were asking the headquarters for bigger discounts that partners would then supposedly offer to customers, which they got the bigger discounts approved, and then they never offered them to the actual end customers. They just pocketed the difference to make a slush fund, and then they used the slush fund to uh, cover travel and marketing expenses, wooing the customers, including foreign government officials. Um, And I love this very diplomatic phrase from the SEC, uh, to take the officials on trips which, quote, were predominantly leisure in nature and had little to no educational or business purpose. Um, again, I 
think we have all heard this before. We have all heard this and then had the words Russia somewhere nearby. Or the other misconduct in question was China, uh, where Chinese subsidiaries of Juniper, uh, they were... Um, basically falsifying trip agendas, meeting agendas for customer events, all of this to cover up uh, that they were actually just splurging on entertainment for government uh, customers. And um, what was interesting, I do think, is that at some point, I think around 2009, senior executives at Juniper got wind of what JNN was doing with its slush funds and bogus expenses and all this stuff, and basically told JNN, knock it off. And JNN did not knock it off. They continued with the slush funds and the improper trips and all this for four more years. Um, so to that extent, like, that is interesting, and, Tom, we can get into how did this keep going on. But the facts of it, you know, slush funds in Russia, slush funds, false documentation in China, splurging on entertainment and improper gifts and travel for foreign government officials. We have heard all of that before. We're hearing it again now. And six years later, blammo, an $11.7 million settlement with the SEC, um, which I think is mostly disgorgement. I'm not exactly sure what any monetary penalty there is, but... Like those are the facts, and in a certain extent, you know, we've been there before. We'll be there again. That's what happened. So, on the penalty, Matt, it was a four million dollar uh, four four million in disgorgement, one point two in prejudgment interest, and a civil penalty of six point five million. So, we actually had a civil penalty higher than the disgorgement this time, albeit not uh, not by much. I found, uh, you know, we both had some interesting takes on this. Um, and you really, uh, you and I looked at the same, maybe split the, the, as we would say in Texas, the watermelon in half, because we looked at personnel and, uh, why don't you explain the kind of the questions you pondered around personnel? This is another reason why I do like this enforcement action is, um, because the actual settlement order doesn't have a whole lot of detail about why, uh, Juniper Network's senior executives told JNN, the subsidiary, they said, don't do it, and they kept on doing it for four more years. Like, well, why? And we don't exactly know. There's a lot of blank space where you can project some best practices you might want to adopt for whatever might have happened there, or some questions to consider for your own circumstances. If you are telling a subsidiary, knock it off, we know what you're doing. Um, I said, first off, we should probably question, ponder questions about personnel, um, that if JNN were given clear instructions by senior command, do not do this misconduct, and then they did it anyways for a period of years, and senior management knew about it back home, that's, I think, when a parent company might start to consider should we be firing people to send a message, <coughs> or actually probably begin with a wave of anti-bribery training so all employees in the subsidiary understand we shouldn't be doing this. And then when they keep doing it, then fire a few senior executives in the subsidiary to tell everyone else, no, we're serious. Um, you have to stop doing this. You and I are both uh, fathers and parents, and I really took a look at that question, uh, but I flipped it around to the parent company angle. Originally, I thought, well, that would certainly what my response as a teenage boy would have been. But actually, I think it moved to the grandparent level 
because I think a parent faced with the situation of a recalcitrant child uh, not only would say something to them as uh, Juniper Network's parent did, but uh, I think they would probably move more quickly to invoke some sort of sanction if that advice slash dictum was not followed. Here it struck me more, Matt, that Juniper Networks was acting like a grandparent. Yeah. Where, uh, and I've heard grandparents say, well, I spoke sternly to them and told them not to do that. Uh, but uh, the grandchild knew there was no sanction <laughs> behind that. They knew they were, in my case, not going to get spanked by a grandparent. And that, um, you know, that's not what grandparents do. So um, it really struck me that this was Juniper Networks, the parent company's failure. And I know you got into the structure of the compliance a function, and perhaps that had something to do with it. But this really struck me is when you have uh, actual knowledge of illegal conduct and you speak sternly, at very sternly, to your subsidiary and say, do not engage in this illegal conduct again or, or we will take action. Um, you have to follow that up. Not only you have to follow that up if they continue to engage in it by taking action, but you actually have to monitor them to make sure that they are not continuing to engage in that illegal conduct because you as the parent are going to pay at the end of the day. And I, So I really found Juniper Network's entire attitude towards this uh, more than lackadaisical, uh, but certainly uh, much more problematic than the, uh, the conduct of the uh, uh, subsidiaries in question. That's a fair point to raise, and I, I definitely like the metaphor of parent versus child and grandparent versus child. Um, you know, my only issue would be that we don't entirely know exactly what Juniper did or didn't do because the SEC enforcement release doesn't really say, and Juniper put out its own statement that doesn't really say what I think is an important question. Who did you fire? When did you fire them? How many did you fire? If you didn't fire them, why not? I'm going to guess at some point somebody probably got fired, but whatever those facts might be, they got bargained out of the final statement, so we don't know. And that gets back to where I said, you know, there are a lot of blank spaces here that we can project some good thoughts, and I think what you're saying is a very good thought. I would just you know, project a best practice here. If you see that your subsidiary is starting to act um, in some inappropriate way, like first do the training and make sure that they're clear on it, and then monitor them to see that they're not doing it. And when they ignore you and they do it anyways, then you have to start firing some people to send a message. Um, exactly how all that played out, why did it play out in some ways rather than others, we don't know, short of Juniper disclosing some extra facts, which I would certainly welcome it if they did, but um, there's a lot of silence on what I think is a key point there, and you know, the Justice Department, which took no action in this case, we should say, but the Justice Department talks a lot about tone at the top and gatekeepers and discipline for gatekeepers, and it's very valid to say, are you going to fire somebody or not if there's serious misconduct? And in this case, we don't know. But we can we can certainly chew over the whether they should or they shouldn't. Once again, in an area that we did not get as much detail as perhaps it would have been instructful for lessons learned, there were several questions raised about the structure of the compliance function. And they, I think, were really raised in the uh, sec- short section on the remediation the company did. But it really gave you an opportunity to, to put some questions forward about structure of compliance. And so I thought maybe we could talk about that and use that as a jumping point 
jumping off point. So what questions uh, did you see around the structure of compliance? Well, what struck me here was the SEC said that uh, Juniper, quote, realigned its compliance function into an integrated unit, all reporting into a newly created and empowered chief compliance officer. <coughs> well, okay, that, that's great that it, they did that, but that implies that, therefore, at some point, Juniper had some sort of a much more fractured compliance function. Again, we don't know exactly what that is because the uh, both Juniper and the SEC statement, they're both silent on what that had been before. Um, I can say that the chief compliance officer at Juniper now, Mike Ward, he joined in 2015 and he's very talented and experienced and i spoken to him once or twice over the years, if I recall, right? Very competent and good chief compliance officer since 2015. But, you know, what did we have in 2009, 2008, 2010? We're not clear on that. Um, but I would just say, so if you have a local compliance officer reporting into local operating managers rather than to a chief compliance officer back at senior command, that is a great way for senior command not to have a complete idea of what's really going on or how to crack the whip on misconduct that may or may not be happening. And I wonder if, or, or I don't even wonder if, I wonder how that fractured decentralized compliance structure that apparently existed, how did that feed into the bigger phenomena of Juniper saying, don't do that, and JNN kept on doing it? I assume that these things are interconnected. Um, it actually made me think of Walmart with its problems with its compliance function in Latin America way back in Mexico in the mid-2000s where local compliance officers were answering to local general counsels. And look where that got Walmart. Um, now, of course, it's totally restructured, and Dan Trujillo is the senior compliance officer worldwide, and all compliance people report into him. Um, similar sort of structure now, I guess, at Juniper, and that's good. But um, I thought it just drives home the point that okay, you can have a decentralized compliance program. Like, that's not illegal. It's not necessarily bad. But it just seems like such a big gamble to me because it can obstruct visibility at the senior ranks into what's really going on. So if you've got a lot of compliance risks or you have one or two high compliance risks, like selling to government agents in Russia or China, which is a sky-high risk, if you have that and you have a decentralized program, like that's a big gamble that senior people can't get visibility or, or authority into what's really going on and think long and hard about doing that. So I guess, Matt, that raised for me the question around operationalization of compliance, which is a phrase we've heard at least since the release of the 2017 evaluation of corporate compliance programs uh, by the Department of Justice. Uh, and is the push to operationalize compliance, has that lead us potentially down this path of decentralization that got these companies in trouble in the last decade, or is operationalization something different? It raises a point that I didn't mention in the post I had about Juniper, but I think is worthwhile, is that sometimes I wonder how much this fractured stress or frustration that we hear about in these enforcement actions is a byproduct of that time. Because this all happened, like, what, Ten years ago to six, six to ten years ago is when this all went down. And technology today really can embed a lot of the compliance operations into daily routines. And then if you 
configure your IT correctly if you're thinking it through uh, comprehensively and wisely enough. The compliance officer way up at the senior level can have that data trickle up to him or her so he can see what's going on. Now, maybe that was not necessarily the case in Russia or China 10 years ago, and maybe you did have, you needed more personnel to do things more manually. Maybe it is a byproduct of that time and that challenge that we have that, but I don't see that you're going to be able to stall on that excuse for much longer because the tech is only going to get better. It's only going to get more embedded. You will have more data analytics capability, and you'll be able to get more real-time data-driven monitoring of what's happening in operations, how it relates to compliance. So you wouldn't necessarily need to think that much about what's the right reporting relationship, where at least you wouldn't need to do it today as much as you might have in an emerging market 10 years ago, which is what we're talking about, which is what got Juniper in, in trouble then. But I, I, don't know if, I don't know if you would necessarily see that today. I'm not sure. What do you think? I have to say I've been uh, pondering that a lot. Uh, particularly over several of the last enforcement actions we've seen where clearly the decentralization of compliance did lead to breakdowns, failures, uh, or missteps in the compliance function. And I guess I worry that um, having swung to the centralized corporate function of compliance and now we are swinging back the other way, uh, we we may be headed down the road where we swing too far and it is a, a matter of correctly calibrating the, the dynamic tension between corporate compliance running the show and having it operationalized down to uh, the business unit level. And perhaps that's something we both need to explore more in depth in writing and in, in another podcast. But that leads me to um, the yeah. third point you raised. And, and when I read this initially, um, I wasn't quite sure uh, how to take this because it seemed to me that Having policies and procedures to support a compliance function is not even table stakes, uh, not even the ante. That's the just to sit down at the poker table. But the more I thought about it, I came around to thinking it's important to, to restate this. And even if it is basic, it's a basic part of your compliance program. So did I get that? Uh, is that a fair assessment of your kind of concluding section on this? Again, what I had talked about with the policies and procedures, in fact, let, let me review what I actually had brought up, was the SEC order did talk about policies and procedures that Juniper has since implemented and apparently got a fair bit of credit, or at least they got praise in the SEC settlement order for the remediation they did, but they implemented things such as a clear escalation policy so the board can quickly hear about uh, serious compliance issues. Didn't have that before. Now it does. Um, implemented policies requiring pre-approval of non-standard discounts, which is what JNN had managed to sneak in in Russia. Uh, pre-approval of third-party gifts and travel and entertainment, which was, I think, at issue in China. Um, and it, what I actually did like, which I think is fairly unusual, at least I haven't heard about it, um, Juniper now requires compliance review even of certain operating expenses in some high-risk markets. Again, we don't know exactly what operating expenses. The settlement order doesn't say. Um, I think today, as we are all so high and mighty in our compliance knowledge, today we would look at all of that and say, oh, yeah, that makes absolute sense. Um, 
if you want to be exceptionally generous, you could maybe say maybe some of those subsidiary employees and managers didn't understand why you needed that at that time. Um, it's easy to be an armchair quarterback now. It's easy to look back in hindsight. But 11 years ago, when this was starting in Russia and China, maybe some of those Russian and Chinese managers honestly didn't think that this was – they didn't understand why not. I don't know if I buy that or not. You know, Like I said, if you want to be exceptionally generous and say, okay, maybe they didn't think that was important then. But the point is, it's absolutely important now. You don't have that kind of policy now if you are working in China or Russia. The DOJ is going to recommend your CEO for visit a psychiatrist in addition to an FCPA attorney. I mean, you can't go into these places without these kind of policies now and having clear thoughts, uh, a clear, thoughtful approach to how are we going to govern this risk. Um, I did say that the policies and procedures you have need to feed into and be part of that strong, good, effective compliance structure you have. Um, these things support each other all the way through. But if you don't have those policies and procedures, it doesn't matter if you've got a centralized or decentralized compliance function. If you don't have any effort or any policies and procedures to reduce the risk. But you do need to have those policies and procedures. We can argue over whether or not the, anybody understood it as thoroughly or maturely back then as we do today. I don't know. But we live today. So like today, you got to have that stuff or, or else you're sunk. So there's a couple of points that uh, struck me as significant out of this enforcement action, Matt. Um, the first one was the bribery scheme you detailed in Russia with the discounts uh, and then the money put into a slush fund used for uh, gifts, travel, and entertainment spend for foreign officials. Um, We often uh, talk about following the money in fraud risk and compliance risk, and typically the money there is to follow the money to see where it goes from your corporation in a way that could facilitate payment of a bribe or fostering a payment of a bribe. But here, I really wanted to use the phrase, follow the money, to ask the compliance professional, Mm -hmm. do you have visibility into where the discounts are going? So here we had discounts given uh, to a distributor, and and even more than the the distributor, they were given specific discounts on customer contracts. But there was never any follow-through to see where the money for those discounts went. And um, so I've been asking the question several times, uh, do you, as the compliance practitioner, have visibility into those rebates, into those payments, into where accounts payable will be sending that money? And this seemed to me to be a particularly instructive case uh, for that question. So what might be your thoughts on that? Well, I I would agree with it all. And you and I have talked before, and we have both written about prior FCPA enforcement actions where clearly it drives home the importance of the compliance office to think about things like accounting policies and how do they translate into actual flows of money from one part of the organization to another. Um, Unrelated, well, not quite related, but uh, what was that case? I think it was Sanofi uh, last year when that got settled where it was abuse of rebates and uh, I think discount coupons that resellers could convert to cash. And, of course, when they converted it, what happened to the cash? Uh, Winds up as a bribe. But similar sort of issue that accounting policies were somewhat loose. The review of them, 
I don't know what the accounting functions might have been doing to review them, but they didn't necessarily appreciate the compliance a part of it. And the compliance officers or the compliance professionals involved in Willing to Bet might not have been as fully versed in accounting policy and how that can be bent and twisted to lead to a bribe. Um, and both of these things you know, really have to work in lockstep. I think it means compliance officers need to understand accounting policies a bit more. Um, I do think that with proper IT and accounting technology today that may not have existed back then but definitely exists today, you can have a much easier time, say, documenting a request for an additional discount and figuring out where is that discount going. Um, and getting a solid chain of evidence that's in one data repository. And we can geek out about IT design of accounting systems some other day. But, you know, you follow my logic. is The tech is there now to allow these sort of things that you want to do. It's just we need to appreciate that you really need to do them. And you know, actually one other point that pops into my head, I'd mentioned a few minutes ago, the Justice Department took no action against Juniper. It closed out that investigation, I want to say at least a year ago, um, uh, yet again, the SEC is still enforcing books and records provisions, even if the Justice Department says there's nothing criminal worth prosecuting here. So you got to know what the books and records are. you got to know how to manage that. you got to know how accounting policy fits into these challenges. you got to have systems in place that will help you achieve these goals to get a good resolution. And um, that had been lacking at Juniper, at least in 20, uh, 2008 to 2013. It seems like they've corrected it now, but it's a good teachable moment. As a final point, I just have to bring this up because uh, in addition to speaking sternly to the Chinese business unit that the uh, Juniper parent company did, they also assigned the company's legal department to review the invoices submitted by the Chinese business unit uh, for approval. Now, these were invoices which were intentionally misleading, i.e. falsified. But frankly, I can't think of a group less prepared, trained, or otherwise in the know in a corporation to review expense reports than a legal department. And to have a legal department actually trying to review the specific expenditures of an overseas business unit, probably uh, with the base documents being in the local language, i.e. Chinese, just seems to me to be a, res re a recipe for absolute disaster. Well, you know, Tom, since you are the lawyer here and I am not, I will simply follow your lead as you criticize the legal profession and sketch out the limits of what it can and cannot do. I know there are some other lawyers who think there are no limits and they can do everything, but I will humbly say you are absolutely correct. Well, Matt, uh, this turned out to be a fascinating podcast. Uh, your, po uh, your blog post was, was fascinating. I enjoyed writing mine. And really for what appeared to be as pedestrian a, an SEC FCPA enforcement action as we have had in quite some time, I thought had a lot of uh, instructive points. We didn't even get to the board points that uh, Jonathan Marks really articulated in his uh, blog post on it. So I'll probably link to that in the show notes. But uh, Really interesting and uh, a lot for the compliance professional to ponder. All right. Thank you, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Both Matt and I have written about the Juniper Network's FCPA enforcement action, and I link to both in the show notes. I also link to that of Jonathan Marks, 
who had some really interesting points around the board of directors and their role in this uh, underlying action and in the remedy. So check out all three posts for more information. I hope you will join us again next week where Matt and I take another deep dive into the weeds on compliance into the weeds, which is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.